And welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. And you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network. That's at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. You can also get it on your favorite podcast source or even call in to listen. And that's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S., but we're totally global. And you can get our back shows, including this one, in a day or so at visionaries.podbean.com. So my guest is M.J. Dorian. And uh, M.J. John. (laughs) Welcome back. Hey, it's lovely. uh, It's wonderful. M.J. Dorian is a music person, creativity person, podcaster, producer. So tell us what you do, and then we'll get into your podcast and the one we want to talk about today. Sure. Exciting stuff. Um, well, wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me back again. I uh, mainly recently have been focusing my creative attention on a podcast called Creative Codex. That's C-O-D-E-X. And So let's yeah. pause and tell people how and where to find it. Sure. I mean, it's available on all the regular podcast platforms. Uh, predominantly, I push people to go on Apple Podcasts because that's a popular source a lot of people use, and it, and it pushes it up on the charts. But it's available on all the regular pad, uh, platforms, such as Podbean, as yours is, and uh, even Spotify. And the goal of the podcast is um, it's really an artist's guide to creativity. Cool. So not only the creative process, but also each episode focuses on specific creative genius throughout time and what we can hope to learn from studying them, their personal writings, their process, and how we can kind of uh, understand art better, but also train the next generation to be artists and be better artists. You know, I did a book on creativity uh Visionary creativity, how new worlds are born. And so I read all the other books. Yeah, there's a lot. And, and, right. And uh, um, I came to the, uh, as an architect, artist in my own way, you're an artist. Um, I don't know about you, but I really get annoyed with psychologists and sociologists. <laughs> in what and, sense? Well, <laughs> You know, I'll read an entire book on creativity, and there's no mention of a work of art. Oh, geez. You know, can you write a book on creativity and not talk about, I don't want to only do, you know, Picasso, Leonardo da Vinci, Beethoven. Um, And what I found, and it makes sense of what you're doing, is a really excellent approach is biography. Yeah. So, for example, in the case of Leonardo da Vinci, the, the newest biography is by Walter Isaacson. Yes, yeah. And uh, so he also did Einstein and Steve Jobs. And uh, uh, But uh, compare that to Freud's book on, he did a little book on Leonardo da Vinci, saying the whole thing was about... Penises. Uh, no, <laughs> his mother. <laughs> or his, his wet nurse. Yes. Because, you know, all of his women have the same small... A lot of men have the same smile. Mm. And uh, so um, that can be true, but it's not, doesn't tell you anything. No, right. What does it tell you? Yeah. And biography does, you know, how, what he's doing. So anyway, who are some of the figures you've done portraits of? We spoke a bit about uh, Tesla 
last time you were here. So who, who, what did you find out about Tesla? Who are some of the others? Sure, there was Nikola Tesla. I mean, part of what's really interesting about Tesla is this debate about what was going on in his brain in terms of if we were to throw him into a modern psychologist's office and he was to tell the psychologist what things he's thinking about and seeing, I mean, my propensity is to think that the psychologist would label him as a schizophrenic because he would often describe these these visions that he would say were as realistic as he could put his hand out and touch them and that he would had since childhood. But the weird thing about them is that they were always in service to a creative end or an invention he was working on, which makes you think, well, it's not just schizophrenia, because schizophrenia often is uncontrolled in terms of what you see, right? So it's, it's more of a nuisance than a, than a help. So uh, it's weird. And then we have a few other portraits. I've, I've focused on Frida Kahlo, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, I recently did one on Salvador Dali, which um, hopefully we'll talk about. And I feel like there was one other, but uh, the next one is going to be on H.R. Giger. And I've oh, also, cool. yeah, yeah, I've also interviewed so, quite a few uh, artists. Frida Kahlo is a big favorite among my students. Mm. And it's interesting. I have to be careful. I like to pick the, usually they're dead white male. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, Picasso, Beethoven, because everybody knows them. And you can There's a lot really, written about them. Yeah, and you yeah. can unfold a... You know, for example, how Beethoven invents uh, the romantic hero mm -hmm. um, and how Picasso is um, shatters conventions with Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Uh, but <clears throat> students, you know, find these uh, very interesting figures like Frida Kahlo and um, often do their reports on them. Um, the... You know, I was um, just writing something. I'm forgetting what, exactly what it was. But there's... Uh, um, psychologists have been, at least now... <clears throat> I, I did a master's thesis on uh, creativity, I guess, in uh, mm. 1967. Mm. <clears throat> and um, at the time, psychology was dominated by behaviorism. So it's totally worthless. I mean, behaviorism holds that there is no interior mind. Mm. Uh, it's only what you do, stimulus response. Mm. And they run rats through mazes and put babies in glass boxes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but the Europeans were uh, Ernst Cassira, Merleau-Ponty, uh, <clears throat> building on Gestalt psychology mm. and doing very rich explorations of how our perception generates the world. Hmm. So <clears throat> then psych psychology about 20 years ago gets into cognition, cognitive psychology. Mm. And, and it was what is, you know, it's recognized that only very fuzzy, indistinct material hits the retina or is reported from the retina. Mm -hmm. The rest is done by the brain on that material. Hmm. And uh, Anton Ehrenzweig, brilliant psychologist in the 60s, shows how that fuzzy material is built into an afterimage. Hmm. And if it's during the Renaissance, that afterimage will be perspective. If it's uh, 
in the 1910s that after image will be cubism mm. uh, and the brain you know the levels of unconscious in the brain are working differently on that material right well to this day so psychologists at least start to recognize that but then they say well there's uh, mental disorders where you can look at a hat and and describe it but not know what it is and Oliver Sacks's beautiful book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, mm -hmm. describes that. But the psychologist still assumes that the correct perception is a hat. <laughs> the physical world, right. <laughs> and the mentally, it's not mental illness, but a, a brain lesion mm. uh, leads to him thinking it's his wife's head. Mm. And so the man who mistook his wife for a hat mm. tries to put his wife's Head on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, but the psychologist assumes one's correct and one's wrong. It could both be correct. They're just different ways yeah. of perceiving. Sure. And Tesla, you know, we say, well, there's a <clears throat> table here and there's sound insulation on the walls and there's glass on the other side to the engineer. Mm -hmm. And Tesla says there are energy fields. Mm-hmm. Well, we know they're energy fields. We can't see them, but he can. <laughs> right. Apparently, he can intuitively know that they're there and how they function, right? And the nature of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dolly described that as well, you know, where he said he can feel, you know, the four, you know, Einstein's relativity pouring through him mm. while he's sitting at the table. So <clears throat> let's get on to. Uh, you, you, uh, your most recent podcast is on Salvador Dali. Dali. So, Dali, okay. <laughs> so uh, um, let me just, I love digressing, which is... Wonderful, I love I tangents. Part of a creative process. <laughs> sure, exactly. So beautiful movie, I'll watch it anytime it's on, is Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. So there's a contemporary American screenwriter who's unhappy with his... Uh, his current career as a screenwriter, wants to write the great novel, and is unhappy with his engagement, but he's going to get married. And he splits up with his wife. She's going to go home. He's going to go for a walk one evening. He's sitting on a stoop in, in Paris mm -hmm. where they're vacationing, honeymooning, or before their wedding. And dong, you know, it's midnight. And this antique car comes by, filled with revelers. They say, get in, get in. <laughs> they go to a party, and there's Cole Porter and Salvador Dali and T.S. Eliot and the, all the expatriates who are hanging out in Paris in the 20s. <clears throat> and uh, so he's able to travel back to that world, and he's hanging out in a cafe with Dali, Dali, uh, <laughs> And uh, so it's interesting how it portrays it. So anyone who wants to get a quick uptake on Dali can start with that. So who was Salvador Dali and what's he known for? And assume that some of our listeners might have no idea. Sure. So Salvador Dali was a painter born uh, in Figuera, Spain. And um, one thing that, or two things that are important to first establish when ever starting a conversation about Salvador Dali are uh, one, Dali was a liar. And so when you kind of read the sources that uh, he was the first one to write his own biography, you know, the sources that then the biographers would rewrite and, and reframe, 
you can either assume either A, he, he's a compulsive liar, or B, uh, he's an unreliable narrator. And so the question then is, you know, why is he doing this? And you, you start to have to accept this idea that uh, he must have seen truth uh, similar to uh, oil paint, the way he, he used it in his works, so that uh, the truth is something that can still be pushed and pulled and manipulated before it like solidifies for all time. And so in these biographies that he wrote, which he calls diaries, and there's actually surprisingly numerous of them, there's at least uh, between five to ten of these things that, that he published, um, he distorts all these elements of his past. But, I mean, one thing we can all agree on, you know, he was born in Figuera, Spain, um, and he w wasn't from a wealthy family. His, his father was a successful notary in this small town. This town is not known for anything except for being the birthplace of Dali. And he, it still holds, you know, a museum there of his, and he was buried there, actually. And so then the other thing to, to, to always establish when talking about Dali is that he didn't invent surrealism. Um, which is a great misconception about him. And if you look up many articles online to this day, say he was the father of surrealism, but more uh, accurately, he was uh, part of a movement called the Surrealist Movement in, in Paris that uh, evolved even before he got to Paris. And he um, famously you know, rode the wave of this movement, and um, he, he achieved notoriety through it. But then um, his, his fame exceeded... So, Marionetti, it. the Surrealist Manifesto. Yeah, that was the first one, and then André Breton wrote the, wrote the next one, yeah. And uh, quite fascinating documents. Uh, just to give context, maybe um, our engineer can play one of the clips. One of the clips uh, says uh, Surrealist Manifesto... So, uh, uh, M.J. Dorian, our guest, has uh, done a wonderful podcast on Dolly. And if you go through his podcast, it will uh, unfold your education. So let's listen to a clip from that. So this should be, is it clip one? It probably is not clip one, because our tangent, the way we're talking, but it would say Surrealist Manifesto on Surrealist it. Manifesto. Here is an excerpt from the Surrealist Manifesto, written by André Breton, which outlines the core principles of the movement. Psychic automatism in its pure state, by which one proposes to express, verbally by means of the written word, or in any other manner, the actual functioning of thought, dictated by thought, in the absence of any control exercised by reason, exempt from any aesthetic or moral concern, unquote. So that's interesting. Let's uh, define psychic automatism. Mm. Right. I mean, from what I've uh, learned about it, reading about it, it can be kind of best, let's say, a good analogy would be a stream of consciousness kind of writing, let's say. So a writer... L letting yeah. pop up what is spontaneously wants to come from your unconscious. Unconscious, yeah, the, the predispositions of your personal unconscious. And it's, it was very much influenced, uh, I mean, kind of predictably from that time by uh, Sigmund Freud and his theories of the unconscious. So the idea is... <clears throat> uh, civilization builds into our, we'll be simplistic here, conscious uh, repressions that are going to mold our behavior, mold what we allow ourselves to be aware of our thinking, 
but there's all kinds of stuff going on there mm. and it can be a source for artistic creativity if we can allow it to spontaneously appear yes yes definitely and but what's curious is that uh, Salvador Dali was, was already on this train of thought when he was still studying in uh, in, in Spain uh, for painting and that's where he met some of the people he would later uh, collaborate with in Paris uh, like Luis Buñuel and Federico Garcia Lorca who became kind of lifelong friends and collaborators but he was already on this train of thought of, of his unconscious mind his memories his, his personal mind being the source of, of, of paintings and subject matter so it's, it's kind of interesting yeah oh, oh before I forget uh I'm I'm not a, remembering the name of it. Do you remember the name of the movie that he did with Walt Disney? Oh, I I did watch it. I didn't like it, but I watched it. But it's 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 uh, people can just go on YouTube. Metamorphosis, something like this. It's like meta. Yeah, something yeah, like this. Yeah, so look it up. Uh, da- Dali and Walt Disney. It, it was completed posthumously after both uh, Dali and uh, Disney died. Right. Yeah. Um. But it's a, it's, and then he did, let's see, he did the dream sequences for an Alfred Hitchcock film. He did, right? sure. I mean, his, his first, though, big, uh, notorious film was when he worked with Lu- Luis Buñuel uh, on Un Chien Andalou, which is considered uh, the, the first surrealist film. The Andalusian Dog. Right. And so what's curious is that even the work process of their collaboration that kind of becomes one of uh, one of these lies that Salvador Dali tells and retells and the idea is that in in his writings and his interviews you'll often hear Salvador Dali say that um, he kind of was the hero of the story that um, Buñuel had this uh, f- these funds that he was given from his mother and then he came to Dali and was like I want to make uh, the first surrealist film I have this idea about a newspaper and the stories from the newspaper come to life and then Dali's version is he says oh well that was a crap idea I never liked it so I told him let me write the screenplay you have money I'll do it and then he says he wrote it on a shoebox and that's what they shot and then you go to Buñuel, and Buñuel is, is much more diplomatic and says, well, um, the origin of the film, which has some disturbing images, but it, it does exist on YouTube to watch, uh, the origin of the film was based on two dreams. One was uh, Dolly's, and the dream was uh, of ants exiting the center of someone's hand. And then Buñuel's idea was a blade cutting somebody's eye. And that, that's shown in the film as like a razor blade, and then it closes up, and you can assume it must have been switched to like a goat eye like you know so that it came from those two dreams and then they went through this interesting process of sitting in a room and lobbing ideas at each other and uh, as extravagant as the ideas could be as unpredictable as they could be and they would go back and forth and they would either say yes or no too predictable yes no yes no like uh, uh, how about a piano comes into the room okay yes what's in the piano okay how about dead donkeys dripping from their mouth yes and like there's they're pulled uh, and there's a cannon no too predictable and like it was a back and forth stream of consciousness kind of thing so uh about dolly being a liar uh one of my colleagues says history does not remember reasonable people Mm. so uh if you want to be remembered you have to be unreasonable (laughs) perhaps that was his take Yeah. yeah and um uh you know, we can suspect Dolly was... There are plenty of artists we know were mentally disturbed. 
Hmm. And uh, we can, you know, they go through episodes of breakdowns and have to be locked up. And, and they, they, you go through the list that died young. Uh, sure. Uh, yep. All the, what is it, 27 that all Club the Club 27, sure. Yeah, <laughs> dozens of rock singers died. But um, Dolly seems to have been totally in control of what no, he was he, doing. No, he's very lucid about what yeah. happens. Yeah. And so... Uh, to be um, a little bit gross about it, say mm. it was an act. Mm. You know, he was well aware of what he was doing. It was very effective. I was just uh, uh, on on your way up. I was listening to your podcast. Tell the story about the diving suit. Right. Yeah. Well, I have a clip from it. Oh, good. Yeah. So, so that's a wonderful clip let's to play. Get the uh, what's it the says name? diving suit on that the clip. diving suit clip. In day-to-day life, he had this unrelenting compulsion to make everything art. Even passing human interactions were seen as opportunities for something truly Dalinian. That term, Dalinian, was an adjective Dali used to describe a scenario or image that fit his criteria for art, which you can think of as this, something absurd and surreal with a touch of the sublime. For example, when he was giving a public lecture in London in 1936 about surrealism, he showed up dressed in a full antique diving suit with antlers and a wine glass glued to the top of the old-fashioned diving helmet. He slowly lumbered up to the podium and spoke into the microphone through the little circular viewing hole of the diving helmet. And apparently he almost asphyxiated himself in the process because he didn't have proper breathing equipment attached to that diving suit. But overall, a scene like this is truly Dalinian. Cool. So uh, we become very aware of, uh, let's assume that with all the theatricality, there is also something there. Mm. But we really do have to establish a brand. (laughs) True. And uh, there was... uh, there's an important architect, um, Steen at Columbia, and oh, his name's not going to come to mind, but he always wore a red scarf, mm, wore mm, a red scarf. You know. mm. So Bernard Schumi, mm. and he was a key figure in uh, deconstruction architecture, and uh, uh, he was he did a really good job, did some very important things when he was dean, but. That way, you know who he is. Uh, I'm involved in <coughs> life extension. I'm working on a project called Timeship, which you can find at timeship.org. Mm. And one of the leading figures in life in sex, life extension is someone named Audrey de Grey. Mm. He's got a beard down to uh, <laughs> below his waist. Oh. And uh, he's a um, biotech researcher. And I think at Oxford, he or Cambridge, one of those. And I think he now has an institute. And um, he's mostly a repository for gathering uh, the current information, Mm. things like telomeres, uh, that if the telomeres stay extended on your chromosomes, you live longer. (laughs) Well, so someone says to him, why the beard? Mm. He says, that way everybody knows who he is. (laughs) Oh, yeah, the guy with the beard. (laughs) The guy with the beard, yeah, that's the first thing. He's at every conference with that stupid beard. With the stupid (laughs) (laughs) beard. So so what what are your thoughts about 
Uh, maybe we can talk more about the theatricality. But yeah. beyond the theatricality, what was Dolly getting at? What does he have to offer? Right. I mean, uh, part of uh, the answer to one of those is this idea that he was in Spain, then he was in Paris, and he had this experience, you know, where he started to get some some notoriety in Paris through his art. But then once he landed in New York City as his first uh, landing in America, and he, he was kind of had this moment in front of the reporters because he had given uh, for, uh, a head notice to uh, some galleries like Julian Levy. He, got, he made some contact with the, the gallery of Julian Levy. And so there were some reporters already waiting for him. And in the process of kind of gauging their reactions to what he was saying, and he, he realized that the more absurd things that he said, the the more they kind of like furiously and like curiously like wrote like, oh, what the heck is this? And the next day in the paper, that would appear. And so it was kind of this feedback loop where, where I, he really clearly realized that um, if he was a character, people would really pay attention to him, which really fed into um, the, this childhood boy-like thing inside of him that ever since he was a boy, like he, he was an only child. Well, actually... For a period of time, he did have a sister, but he, he certainly craved the attention um, like crazy since since childhood. And the second he arrived in America, he realized there was something here that he could um, take advantage of that fed a natural propensity of his for spectacle. And uh, people ate it up, you know? I think that was part of it. And, um, you know, one of the reporters famously asked him... Um, what do you think of the surrealist movement? Because they knew that he had come from Paris. That's where he was. He was. And he, he, proclaimed, he proclaimed, I am surrealism. And they, they sure wrote it down. They published it the next day. And sure enough, André Breton, when they, when they saw that in Paris, they're like, what the hell? <laughs> we, what the hell is wrong with Dali? What's he doing? And he was just feeding into it. You know, he, he loved it. Tell us about the lobsters. The lobsters. I mean, um, yeah, I, I think it's just a personal fixation of his. He once famously said he only eats animals with armor. And so that includes lobsters and you know, rhinoceroses. Rhinoceroses. He made a lobster telephone, right? Right, right. Well, yeah, Dada kind of sculpture. But yeah, that was towards yeah, the, the latter half of, of his experiments and, and creative things. But I think it was... Yeah, the, the spectacle and everything fed into what he naturally wanted to do, but maybe he didn't have a venue for it in Paris because, again, he kind of discovered this unique thing about America that, that I realized as I was reading his time in, in New York City is that America is it's not really the place of movements. We don't really get obsessed about reading about movements. We're interested in individuals, mm. right? Which is what you were saying about creating a character or a brand. We, we want to read about individuals. We want to see the movie about that one guy or the one lady who like conquered the odds and is the strange hero in these un uncertain circumstances. That's the weird thing about America, I think. Right. So I'm going to give you a hard time yeah. and go back to, uh, aside from the theatricality, what is important about Dolly? What's he saying? What? Yeah, sure. There's, there's a lot. I mean, one of the most important things is, again, this idea of the unconscious mind. Okay. And that he believed that he should not censor himself in any form, whether that put him into trouble politically, socially, uh, sexually implied things. You know, there's, there's plenty of paintings that are just kind of weird stuff. Like, um, he clearly had an anal fixation. Uh, he clearly had, like, a fixation on, on um, poo-related things and, like, people with poo on their pants, um, that, that people in the Surrealist movement, the, the leader of André Breton, he would like, 
he would grill him on him. He's like, well, well why, does, why does this guy need to have poo on his pants? What's that, what's that saying? And then Dolly's answer would be like, I, I'm not going to censor my unconscious mind. If that's right. what I'm fixated on, that's what I'm going to paint. And uh, one time it got him into some trouble because he painted this uh, painting, Enigma of William Tell. And the Surrealists all almost unanimously hated it because it was a, a picture of Vladimir Lenin. At the time, they kind of viewed him as, as this great figure of, of communism, that, which is something they followed. And so it's this bizarre painting, Enigma of William Tell, and it's Vladimir Lenin's face, and then he's kind of kneeling on one leg, other leg exposed, and one of his butt cheeks is extended like a, and a strange length behind him, so he's pantsless, and it's like resting on a crutch. And so the Surrealists, they kind of saw this as like a shot at them because they couldn't imagine somebody saying anything bad about Lenin. And so they almost, uh, they tried to damage it when it was in the, uh, showing in the gallery with like their canes. When it showed. So, and uh, maybe it's a little bit diagrammatic, but we can associate his melting watches with Einstein's mm. notion of space and time as being not rigid, but yeah. uh, mutable. Um, so when I'm, I, uh, I, I always stop by those rooms in the Museum of Modern Art when I'm there, and it's interesting to see how many people are gathered with the little talking sticks in front of the melting watches. Mm. And what's the proper name of that? Persistence of Memory. It's a right. small painting, yeah. Right. Surprisingly oh, it's small. surprisingly small. Yeah. yeah, it gets much more generous in the textbooks. Sure, <laughs> they blow it up. And uh, and then right around the corner is Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Mm. And it's interesting to see these moments in history uh, in the museum. So, and we're all looking forward to MoMA is closed right now mm -hmm. and will open in late October with uh, a new redesign. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> my father uh, was going to Museum Modern Art when it was in the townhouse. So that's the <laughs> oh, original. really? When it started? Yeah. Ooh. And if you go to the design collection, there's an Art Deco silver box hmm. about a small jewelry box and solid silver and he said when he was there there was nobody around and the box is just sitting on a table hmm. he could have walked out with it <laughs> uh, now of course everything's behind glass and yeah but uh <clears throat> and then goodwin and stone did the new building around 1932 hmm. and in the most recent restoration they sort of preserved their facade, yeah. even though there's a new entrance. And then Philip Johnson did an extension in the 60s, and then I think there were two more, one quite recent by a Japanese architect. I teach architectural history. I should know the name, but my apologies. So anyway, now there's a total redo. Really. Mm. Again, a huge expansion. Hmm. And um, it's if you're in the arts, this is kind of a touchstone, you know, my Parents would take me there as a child, and so my having been there over the decades, mm. um, and you know the references for, and then there was big show in the '60s with uh, Klaus Holdenberg and Andy Warhol, and was this sacrilege? Is this still art? Uh, and of course, we now just accept that today. Sure. Uh, so be. Interesting to see what they're doing next and where Dolly is in uh, this changing context. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Now, 
So what else did you find out? Go ahead. Yeah, no, just to one idea on the persistence of memory, since you yeah. know, it's such a prominent painting and, and we've seen it, I've seen it myself as well. So one really curious detail about it that I think is it provides a lot of insight into the artist's process and creativity is that one thing that Dali said about it, which I think is totally true, because uh, really there's no, he doesn't present him as a hero in this sense, um, is that when he was working on it, it was just you know small piece, and he was painting it, he wanted to paint that landscape, this kind of golden desert, um, which is ambiguous enough, you're not sure, is it a seaside, is it just a barren desert, um, where is the locale, and he, st he did the trees, he did the desert, and he didn't know yet what he was going to place as the main subject in the painting. And he was finishing up this landscape already. And it's kind of a really curious idea that an artist, a writer, anyone who's making any, any creative work, an architect, perhaps even, right? They can start the work without knowing where it's going to go, but they know that this, this frame they've created for it is, is going to be something great. Mm. And they're going to keep moving with it, even though they're, they're all doubtful. And then he says that... Uh, he had just come back from a dinner, and Gala ba went back out, his wife, so he was alone. And then he worked on it a little bit, and he was about to go to sleep, so he was kind of in this dreamlike state. And he was exiting the room. He took one last look at it, right as he was about to turn out the light. And as he turned out the light, he, that flash of the melting watches hit him. Mm. And in that moment, he was like, that, that's, what it's, that's what it is. That's what it needs to be. And then he turned the light back on. He got right back to work. He painted the watches. Gala came back that night, and he covered it up. He, he sat her down, and he goes, okay, I need to reveal this to you. Now close your eyes on the count of three. And then one, two, three. She opens her eyes, and he describes that he, he sees an a, a, a impression of wonder and astonishment on her face. And he says, Gala, do you think in five years, ten years, people will still remember this painting? And then she goes, it cannot be forgotten once he has seen it. Mm. And so that was his impression. Yeah. Cool. Uh, one of the things we should do when we're encountering art is, um, you know, we've said these things about it. I refer to the melting watches and the malleability of time. But we shouldn't reduce a work of art to... Um, uh, a brief interpretation, mm -hmm. but actually, we urge our listeners go stand in front of it and look at it. Right. Or if you're not in New York, uh, look at it in a book. And <clears throat> what are the ants all about? Right. Uh, <laughs> what's the rotting thing that looks sort of like a walrus uh, sure. all about? Uh, so <clears throat> there can be lots there that you might read uh, a textbook description discussion. Yeah. And you might see things that other people aren't seeing. And it's equally valid, yeah. Right. So, for example, um, uh, one of my favorite figures is Joseph Campbell. Mm -hmm. And he describes an interpretation of Homer's The Odyssey as, after the Trojan War, Odysseus and his men leave for home, and they go sack a town. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the, the gods say, these people aren't prepared to go home. So then they go off to the land of the lotus eaters. Mm. Ooh, wee, ooh, <laughs> we're going to go in another realm. That's now. totally different. Right. It's a very strange and, place. And now he, uh, Odysseus encounters 
the three manifestations of woman. Mm. So Narsika is the virginly girl. Uh, Calypso is the wifely hmm. uh, matron. Uh, the other one is the witchly hmm. woman. And so he reintegrates the female quality back into himself mm. with these three encounters, with these three aspects of... From a, an unknown place, right? Well, mm. Yeah, well, the, that... Well, to get back to that, but mm. you won't find that interpretation anywhere else. Mm. I mean, that's... So, um, uh, I just bought a book, 20th Century Interpretations of the Iliad. It's a little book from... Uh, the 1920s, yeah. I saw online. So, wow, let you know, get some more of these books and see what people have said. Yeah. But yeah, if you look at um, often in a narrative work of art, like um, uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite movies, Groundhog Day. <laughs> so it begins <laughs> with uh, uh, the the weatherman being a total jerk in the studio, and then he and his producer and the cameraman are leaving for Punxsutawney to record Groundhog Day and they're leaving Pittsburgh and they're crossing a bridge mm. you know this, we're leaving ordinary reality yep. Yep. and something beyond some fabulous forces something strange is going to unfold the so bridge you, yeah, right. a heavy archetypal symbol right yeah. so you see that in lots of so for example <clears throat> I did a a little video of five movies about Venice these are for my cruise ship lectures. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, when you do the Adriatic, you can lecture about Venice movies. So one of them is, um, I think it's called Summertime with Catherine Hepburn. Hmm. And opening scene, so she's an American secretary who goes to Venice, saves up her money, has a fling. And so opening scene, she's on the train. Hmm. Uh uh, the, at that time, the train was new. You previously had to get there by boat. Hmm. And it, it arrives at the station, and which is a modern 1950s architecture. And then, bam, you go out the door, and there's Venice. Mm. <laughs> but on the train, she's got her movie camera jammed in front of her eye. Hmm. She wants to record and remember this, which means she's not allowing... The experience—it's protecting her from the real experience. Right, right. And what the movie's going to be about is the breaking down of that armor, mm. so that she can really have the experience. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, just looking at narratives through the the kind of analysis of archetypes is, is I, I think, incredibly insightful. Same thing with uh, looking at art. I mean, a lot of times those stories that have lasted throughout time—ancient Greek stories. The, the reason I think they feel compelling to us still is the reason of the archetypes. Right. So you see uh, <coughs> uh, Coppola's Apocalypse Now, mm. and it, you can go book by book through the Odyssey, mm. as well as Conrad's, um, what's the name of the Conrad book? Anyway, it's, you know, Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Oh, Heart of Darkness, sure, yes. Yeah. yes, yes. And it's the Homer's uh, Odyssey. Gotcha, yeah. Uh, layered with this Vietnam War stuff. I think Old Brother Where Art Thou did that as well. Um, they did. They used the Odyssey as, as a cool. structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah as, as does uh, James Joyce and Ulysses. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> Interesting, some, one of the commentaries I was reading on that says, well, Joyce didn't read ancient Greek, but he read... Latin. Hmm. So he uses 
Oh, Ulysses, which is the Latin name of Odysseus, which is the Greek, the, the oh, Greek name. Oh, okay. Huh. Curious, curious. So do you have any more dolly clips for us? Yeah, sure, sure. What, what's, which one should we do next? Um, let's do one we haven't done. Let's, we'll do Russian roulette on it. Okay, any dolly clip. <laughs> we'll end Dolly's thoughts on the surrealists with this final passage. Politics commitment, as the surrealists called it, came between us. Marxism to me was no more important than a fart, except that a fart relieves me and inspires me. Politics seemed to me a cancer on the body poetic. I had seen too many of my friends dissolve into political action and lose their souls in it while trying to save them. Social science, economics seemed ridiculous to me, useless and especially phony, the inexact science par excellence, a lure set out with inextricable contradictions in which to trap artists and intellectuals, that is, those least fitted to resist emotional appeals so they could be mobilized in defense of causes that, come what might, would eventually be solved in natural course by the forces of history, in which intelligence played only a very minor part. Poetry and art were the great sacrifices to the historical event. Having no part of it seemed to me the only effective method of action and self-defense, the only honest way to deal with the poesy one carried within oneself like a rare and delicate flame. Cool. Well, uh, just to expose my own politics, uh, I agree with that. <laughs> right. Uh, I think it would, uh, it would be, uh, uh, it's a very useful caution for today. Mm. And um, uh, we should, um, we should allow art the, an equal stature with politics. Mm -hmm. And there's a passage from, uh, Leslie Fielder, in which he said, and this is written, I think, in the late 50s, hmm. saying um, that the suffering of the world presses on us so urgently that we're driven to, um, we need to rush out and solve it. All right, right. And, but um, maybe the current fashionable solutions aren't, the best. Mm. So maybe there should be a little bit of openness to creativity, which might suggest other solutions. Sure, sure. And if you shut those off with, um, to use the word, political correctness, uh, you might miss uh, better solutions. Yeah, you know, I, I think I agree. Um, and there, there's two things in there that I, I think uh, could do with some elaborating that are really interesting. He touches on this idea that I haven't heard anyone speak of before, which is uh, that artists, I think because of their natural propensity to, to be more open to the influence of the environment of, and of social interaction, I think artists are generally more sensitive to all everything around them. Because to create something significant, something relevant as art, you have to be taking those influences in. So you're also taking in emotional influences. And so it makes sense that people who are artists throughout time 
um, they would fall into, and perhaps you could say these these traps, these uh, certain trends throughout politics, um, where there are calls for you know empathy, calls for sympathy for certain people's causes and, and certain um, uh, people who have uh, perhaps not had their fair shake in society. And it makes sense that artists would fall for that uh, because they're more sensitive to it, right? I mean, right. Well, and it's interesting when you say sensitive to what's going on. Hmm. And there's um, there's what we're told we should be sensitive to, hmm. and then there's if you know we can follow the um, uh, suggestions of the surrealists, opening to what we might be perceiving that we're not aware we're perceiving because we're too being too. Make paying too much attention to what we're told we should be attention to. Right, attention. following the narrative of the day. <laughs> right, so I'm thinking of um, Andy Warhol, and today it's all old hat and it's universally accepted. But when he first started doing, you know, the Brillo boxes and the soup cans, so you say, well, you know, what is that? Sure. But then you think, <clears throat> if you go to um, Cezanne, hmm. painting still life, and there are apples and oranges, and or and then Cezanne would do a scene of vegetables set out in front of a store. And this would be Paris, 1890, mm. and they don't have refrigeration, they don't have fluorescent lights. <laughs> uh, they put the vegetables out in a wood bin in front of the store. That's what Cezanne is painting that. So then we go off to. Uh, Art Students League in the 60s and uh, we go to the studio and we're studying painting and a teacher puts out an arrangement of apples and oranges and you know, mm-hmm. we're painting a still life. Again, yeah. <laughs> well, what, what, we're not painting what's there in 1960. We're painting an imitation yeah, of what says of what was in... in 1890. <laughs> or even earlier, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then Andy Warhol says, yeah, let's go Let's go to the grocery store the way Cezanne did and paint what's there. <laughs> and what's there is fluorescent lights and Brillo boxes and sure. Campbell's soup cans. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, this is true. <laughs> and so, um, uh, and everybody saw that, mm. but no one allowed themselves to believe that it had any significance. It was, and if you were a good leftist, as artists were supposed to be, you you knew that anything corporate or commercial was bad. Mm. The fact that this was feeding millions of people, that starvation had been eliminated, mm. that um, kids were growing up, you know, six inches taller than they were in the 1890s because they're actually getting the nutrition they needed. Right. Um, that people didn't have rickets from vitamin D deficiency, you know. Not, no, this is all evil because it's being done by a corporation. <laughs> right, right, right. No, that's true. Yeah, that makes sense in that sense of, of Warhol's significance. There's a thing also to be said for um, this this idea that makes Warhol make more sense as well, that uh, a great artist and one that stays relevant over time is one that's able to take what is the mundane and elevate it to the profound so or realize that what we thought was mundane Mm -hmm. has a in a certain way that we may not be thinking of a profundity sure yeah 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 there's that there's also the 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 other insight from the the dolly quote 
that I had gained after thinking about it for a while is this idea that, the, the, well, why shouldn't art you know, venture into politics? Why shouldn't a painting be political? And there's, there's a fine line I think you end up walking as an artist if, if you try to be political or fit into the narratives because um, what, what ends up being political art, I think, uh, ends up venturing into propaganda and it's maybe no longer art. And, and what is propaganda? I think it's, it's a form of advertising. Right. It's it's now it's entering into something else. And and often advertising and propaganda, they, they age very poorly and rapidly because the taste, uh, the, the political taste or the narratives, they change every decade. And and there, there's no timelessness to it. Whereas as something like surrealism and Dali um, had given a talk once at the MoMA um, in the 30s. And this was a, a wonderful talk he gave. And he said that the reason surrealism is, is universal is because it deals with human universals. And so he said those three human universals are uh, sexuality, death, and the enigma of time and space. Mm. That's really that covers about. it. <laughs> that covers it, right? Any art that focuses on any of those or all three of those or some variation of those, everyone understands it when they look at it or read it or watch it. Cool. So, um, do you have any more clips? Should we do one more and then we'll wrap up? I'd love to, sure. There's Let's at least one more. One more clip. <laughs> On November 15th, 1934, many of the morning papers of New York City welcomed the arrival of Salvador Dali. The 22nd page of the New York Times read, in big capitals, Salvador Dali arrives. His steamship had docked the day before, and a press event had been set up with 25 of his paintings being on display, reporters asking curious questions about the meaning of his paintings. It was at this moment that Dali realized something, as Ian Gibson describes, the showman in Dali grasped immediately that big-hearted, somewhat naive America was his oyster, unquote. The more fanciful his symbols and explanations, the more the reporters furiously scribbled with their pencils. He was getting the attention he craved since he was a child and running with it. In one interview, he said, I do all my work subconsciously. I never use models or paint from life or landscapes. It is all imagination. That is, I see everything in a dream as I am working, and when I have finished a picture, I decide what the title is to be. Sometimes it takes a little time before I can figure out what I have painted. The scenes in my imagination all have Spain in the background, my own Catalonia or perhaps the south of Andalusia. Unquote. Great. So let me wrap up with two <laughs> Dolly stories. Yeah, I'd love to. One is um, uh, we did a show just last week. <clears throat> a woman did a book on liminal dreaming. Ooh. The dreaming just as you're falling asleep. Ooh. And she said both Edison and Dolly would sit in a chair, mm -hmm. Edison with a metal ball, Dolly with a big brass key, the metal plate on the floor. And then as they drifted off, now the problem is the thoughts, images, sub-dreams that come to mind is about to fall asleep. If you fall asleep, wake up eight hours later, you're not going to remember them. Right. So upon 
just nodding off. You drop the key, that wakes you up. Mm -hmm. Then you can write down or sketch Mm -hmm. the images. So Dolly apparently did that. Yes, he did. Uh, The other story was there's this wonderful woman, Ultraviolet, and she was one of the Andy Warhol superstars. Mm -hmm. So I came to know her when she was much older and uh, was doing sculpture. And I work with a sculpture fabrication company, and I was driving her out to Brooklyn to work on one of her projects. So we were chatting. She said, what, so what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And uh, I started describing her work on Timeship, which is a cryonics facility, and uh, we're using next generation technology. And I'm trying to explain this to somebody who might not. And she says, oh, yes. Salvador Dali and I were signed up to be frozen together. <laughs> she was his girlfriend for a while. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it, was, uh, it was a revelation. Uh, so let's wrap up with uh, my guest is MJ Dorian. So why don't you run through your website, what you do, your, where your, your podcast, where people can find more about you. Sure. Um, just a quick side note, uh, read Maniac yeah. Eyeball, the book written by Salvador Dali, the last passage in it of okay. Maniac Eyeball. Um, Dali talks about him wanting to be cryogenically frozen, that that's his plan for immortality. Cool. <laughs> so he mentions that, exactly what you're saying. So uh, you can find you know all the stuff I do on my website, mjdorian.com, mjdorian.com. There's links to the podcast there, and the podcast is on all podcast platforms uh, creative Codex, C-O-D-E-X. And Creative and then Codex. Yep, Creative Codex. Great. Okay, so this is, uh, I guess, has been MJ Dorian <clears throat> talking about Salvador Dali. Go listen to the whole podcast. I'm John LaBelle, your host. This is Visionaries. Catch us every Monday at 10 a.m. See you next week. Music.